Welcome, lucky listeners, to episode 12 of Culture Goes Pop. On this week's episode, we will be introducing a brand new segment called Sequel Strikes Back. I'm your host, Scott Wilson, and I'm joined by Steve Strobridge. And let's get to it. All right. Well, we got something special today. We got a special guest. Matter of fact, history is being made. We have our first guest on the program. So far, 11 episodes, it's been just us two yo-yos. So I'd like to introduce a friend of mine and uh, somebody who I hope you all are going to enjoy, but Mr. Alan Murphy. Welcome to the program, Alan. Howdy, howdy. I am so glad to have you join us. Alan and I know each other through other communities and, and interests, and we'll, we'll get to get your backstory here in just a second. But uh, Alan and I, you, you and I have had this conversation because you're a sci-fi aficionado and i would consider you almost like a scholar slash historian on the depth of knowledge you have when we get into these conversations sometimes heated conversations but the topic came up uh where there's a couple of movie franchises uh, where i feel like we had a great first movie something nobody ever saw before and then boom we have a sequel and then the sequel is like amazing and some could even argue where the sequel or the second film was possibly even better than the first, which is very rare. And then at some point in time, subsequent sequels happened, but none of those sequels were really as good as the first two. It's almost like we, we lightning struck twice and we peaked and now we're plummeting on sequelitis. Um, and uh, so that's the kind of premise of this whole segment that we're going to call sequels, the sequel strikes back. But before we get into that, Alan, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself um, what makes you the aficionado, super nerd historian that you are? <laughs> um, I would probably have to say the most simple answer to that would be just an addiction to science fiction. Um, when I was a kid growing up in the country, there was nothing around. Um, one night, my parents got the TV out and we set up and watched 2001 A Space Odyssey. And it blew my mind. And I was very, very young at the time. And then that summer, out came Star Wars. And that was just the phenomenon that it still is today. And very shortly after Star Wars came Alien. So very young, there was kind of a, an exposure to the trifecta of amazing science fiction. And not only did I like those futures and those stories and those technologies and that vision, I kind of wanted to know all the behind the scenes backstory stuff that went on with it. And, you know, this stuff is legendary now when it comes to 2001 or star Wars. And, you know, the more that you get into something, the more you find these little threads to follow. And over the years, especially now with the advent of the internet, there's so much more information has come to light that it really is just an amazing time to be a fan of those things. And so, I just chase down everything that interests me and try to, you know, collect it up and hoard it and enjoy it and, you know, watch the movies over and over again and, and talk about it with friends. And you watch the movies. You're also big on the books, too, because you've schooled me on some of the actual books that the movies are based on, which is great. You're well, also that, on... that came from the country upbringing. Um, you know, really, books were all, were all we had. 
uh, rather than cable TV or this was before VHS or anything like that. So uh, the detail is in the books and all the original intent, and they have to bend things to make movies. Uh, Terminator, I think, though, is kind of a little more unique in that regard in that it was created as a movie to begin with rather than as an adaptation. Uh, I'll check myself on that later, but it was original, uh, an original movie to the author rather than an adaptation to begin with. And what we could argue that Star Wars is that too, one of your holy trinities, right? Star Wars basically was a script that got turned into a book, but I don't think, you know, I don't think he wrote the book before he wrote the screenplay. Yeah, that's the way I understand it. Perfect. So you are like, and so last week, Scott and I did a segment called Get to Know Us. I kind of talked about the things in the 70s that inspired me and Scott. You know, there's about a 10 year difference between Scott and I. So my first decade was the 70s. His first decade was the 80s. Um, so we did, we, we kind of started our backstories last week on episode 11. So we got a little bit of your backstory there. And you and I uh, know each other through the other show that I do, the Coco Talk show. And so you're also like me into vintage uh, retro computing and uh, new video games and old video games and things like that, too. And you're even working on a video. Speaking of Alien, and uh, you're working on a video game based somewhat on Alien uh, called Nostromo, right? Yep. Um, Back in the very late 70s, early 80s, a Japanese student programmed what became the first survival horror video game called AX2 Uchu Yususin Nostromo. And the idea was that it was a sequel to a shoplifting game that the programmer thought being able to see the guard in the shoplifting game kind of made it too easy. So Alien had just come out. He decided to theme his game on the movie Alien and add the twist of having the monster disappear when it was not directly in your line of sight. And it made the game much harder. And nowadays, uh, it's considered basically the first alien-inspired computer game and kind of the progenitor of the survival horror games that we have today. Cool. So that's a project you're working on that will be available on uh, vintage computing. So you're writing an old, you're, you're doing a port of a Japanese game from a Japanese computer system to the Tandy Color Computer series of United States-based computers, but it's still being developed on an old machine, a 40-year-old 8-bit computer. <laughs> so it's a, it's a cool hobby, uh, and it's a cool project that you're working on there. So maybe when it's done, you can come back and, and tell us about it some more. Uh, so let's let's dig in. Let's dig in with the topic of the day called the sequel strikes back, and we'll start with talking about the Terminator series. Uh, the first Terminator movie came out in 1984, starring everyone's favorite Terminator at this point, Mr. Arnold. I'll be back, Schwarzenegger, and uh, the the movie is legendary. Everything about this mythology is legendary. The punchlines, the movie quotes, the soundtrack, you name it. Um, This one started it all. So maybe before we get into the whole series uh, of these things and and the ones we liked and didn't like before we start tearing things apart. um, Scott, what are are your thoughts and recollections on seeing the Terminator movie in the theater for the first time? The first one I saw in the theater was Terminator 2, 
I actually saw a version on NBC when they aired it on Sunday night, and I fell in love with it. My mother had originally seen it when it came on HBO for the first time. I was only seven. She used to monitor the things that I watched very closely. And the Terminator was just way too violent, and she just wouldn't let me watch it. But when I finally saw it on network television about four years later, or three years later, I just fell in love with it. Uh, but the first one I saw in the theater was Terminator 2 Judgment Day. My anticipation for that couldn't have been higher at the time. I had a souvenir magazine that I had ordered from the pages of Starlog that I got way before the movie came out, and I was able to read the basic story. And the movie less lived up to my expectations. It's the biggest Schwarzenegger movie ever. I think still adjusted for inflation, it's the biggest Schwarzenegger, the biggest box office hit he ever had. And it also kind of introduced a lot of people to CGI or the term liquid metal. So, yeah, I can't really say a whole lot about it that hasn't been said already. All right. Then what about you, Alan? The thoughts, reactions, takeaway from seeing the first movie for the first time when pretty much nobody had ever saw anything like this before. So the original Terminator, when it came out, I would be roughly 13, 14 years old. And it came out at a time when science fiction was pretty much at an all-time high. We'd had everything from 1982 to 1984 was just a great series of science fiction movies. And when the Terminator came out, one of the things that I thought was the most amazing about it was that, as you noted, it is brutal for the time. There were effects in that movie that were on par with horror movies that really stood out. And I had been a fan of the movie The Thing, which uh, is another amazing, there's there's a franchise for the future to talk about. Um, Amazing film. Amazing film. Right. And the Terminator took so many great ideas and put them together. It was just compelling to watch all the way through. I remember being blown away in the theater. The From the opening, which just got such an amazing amount of 80s charm with the glow and the metal and the font and everything. Yeah. And then the music kicks in and you have no idea what's going on. You're confused for the first I don't know, 30 minutes of the movie until it really kicks in. But once it kicks in, it just never stops. And it just keeps getting better. But you get a couple of really great scenes. So I watched this movie, and by the end, I, I didn't even remember that this guy Arnold Schwarzenegger was in it. It was all about that that metallic robot that just would not stop. And it's burned in your mind. I mean, you watch that thing on the big screen the first time it's burned in and you know, kind of, I think to even acknowledge that when the second movie came out, uh, it was yeah, not even 10 years later, but one of the very opening scenes of the, that credit burns right into your mind because again, it's the endoskeleton robot on fire. I mean, the whole beginning yeah, of the second yeah. movie is fire. You know, everything is burning and exploding and it's the playground that you see later. Um, but you know, you get that visceral music and that visceral imagery and it really just takes you right across the intervening years. So you know that when the second movie starts up that everything you loved about the first movie, it's about to happen again. 
Absolutely. It's um I did see it in the theater. I think you and I are probably in the same age. I'm you know, I'm in my I'm fifty-five, so I think we're in the same ballpark there. Um I did see it in the theater and prior to this, Arnold Schwarzenegger was m- most well known cinematically for um Conan, the Barbarian. Right. So he already had a box and talking about movies that had too many sequels, <laughs> but we'll save that for another day. But yeah, so, you know, he, he had box office credibility as Conan. And I don't remember if um, Predator was before or after this, but it was um, after. after it was after. But yeah, so definitely Conan, Conan, he was well known for. So he was definitely a bankable name. Um and yeah, so having him, Lyndall Hamilton, who at the time was in the Beauty and the Beast series, if anybody even remembers that at this point, but with yeah, Ron so she, Perlman from Alien. yeah, with Ron Perlman as the Beast, and so that she was that was kind of her launching pad, um, and so she was kind of you know on a TV series and was in this movie as you know Sarah Connor. Everything about this movie to me was just kind of like seeing Star Wars for the first time. Is this stuff you had never seen before? Um, on the big screen, it was just so inspiring and and motivating and moving. And you talk about the 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 level of graphic violence and detail. When you think about it now, too, almost everything that you saw that was that graphic was all done with practical effects. But the thing where he kind of cuts the skin off of his hand, and you can see the robotic hand moving, and he's like pulling the eye out, and you know, it's kind of looking in the mirror with that. And all those effects were practical effects. You know, Stan Winston created the uh, animatronic type stuff for the for the endoskeleton and it just makeup effects and practical effects and they worked very well when you I, I had some stats I don't have the budget on there but they probably didn't spend a ton of money on that because it wasn't a lot of um, visual um, effects mostly done all practically but if you say uh, it was a horror it was a Steve I can kind of yeah Steve I can help you out that. a little bit with that I think the I think the budget was at or a little under $10 million. It was a low-budget film when it came out. You can kind of see it with some of the stop-motion effects, which I have no problem with, but people even back then kind of made fun of a bit. But, yeah, it was a it was a relatively low-budget picture for the time. Yeah, but the effects of him ripping the skin off of his hand, pulling out his eye when he's on fire and, again, is burning down to just the, the, the robotic skeleton um, – so many, so many memorable moments. But yeah, it's it's a horror story. You have a Terminator chasing after Sarah Connor, and the whole concept of time travel, and the whole thing that's been played out in sci-fi so many times, where we done screwed up, and you know, the computers took over. So now the now our computer overlords are running things, and we are now the um, you know, we're the vermin. So the human race is the vermin that the machines are trying to get rid of. That whole concept that trope of technology gone wrong that's been played out in science fiction so many ways this is like the pinnacle of just you know skynet and the terminators hunting down human beings and got to the point where things were so bad we now have to go in the past to kill the leader of the resistance before we can have the resistance so we can wipe out the human this whole concept of you know uh, technology gone horribly wrong and time travel and horror and, and robots killing people. Uh, oh, my God. It's just everything you wanted in the sci-fi and how it was pulled off with the visual effects, special effects, the action, you know, gritty gun violence. Oh, everything you want as a, you know, as a teenager watching an action flick. It's everything you wanted to see. The Future War, Los Angeles 2029. I wanted a whole movie of just that. And eventually we got one. 
but originally that was the part that struck out in my mind so much was you see the hunter killers rolling across this landscape of Los Angeles that's just covered in the dead and bones. And you yeah. get, this is a science fiction movie, but it is definitely a horror movie right up front. And you know, then the guy's chopping parts out of himself and it just goes on and on that, but it's a James Cameron movie. And he's been quoted as saying that every movie he writes is a love story. And that does come through even in Terminator. You get these huge action chase montages, and then you got the quiet moments. And then he amps it up again even harder. And then you get the quiet moments. And Terminator was really his, not his debut, but it really was his debut. I mean, he had done a lot of work for New World before that, but Terminator was his vision, his baby, his idea. And he went as far as he possibly could to make it happen. And it showed. And the, the best part I thought, not only is it kind of what landed him the opportunity to do aliens, which uh, we'll talk about later, but is that you can see all of the stuff that is going to make Jim Cameron be the director that he is, was there to begin with. So it wasn't yes. just about yes. special effects. It was, that he had a story in mind, he had these very strong visuals, and he had enough guerrilla filmmaking technique to pull it off for very little money. You know, the first Terminator, like you said, was less than $10 million. It, it was 1984, but came out about the same budget as Alien, which had been five years before. So that guerrilla filmmaking experience that he had pays off. You know, every dollar spent counted and he managed to save quite a few by not getting licenses and doing some other, you know, sort of shady stuff to get some scenes shot without uh, permits and things. <laughs> and, and, it, and, you know, the, you, that's just the way that he works. And that comes up later and later. Now, by Terminator 2, he has 10 times the budget and 10 times the experience. So at that point, he had done The Abyss, which is where the effects became possible to even do the, the T-1000. And he had Aliens and The Abyss and Terminator, all science fiction behind him. So when he got to Terminator 2, it's very easy to see that, oh, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and just shoot for the moon. Right. And so the main and, uh, characters in, sorry, Scott, go ahead. Okay. Oh, yeah, just to sort of piggyback or elaborate on the horror elements of the original film, one thing that gets talked about more now but wasn't talked about so much back when it was released was that the Terminator, the original, was always very much a slasher movie in cyberpunk clothing. There's a, it has a lot in common with John Carpenter's Halloween, and I'm not even saying that as a criticism. I'm saying... James Cameron sort of found the perfect visual language and the perfect genre clothing in which to tell a slasher story. I mean, the slasher being this unstoppable cyborg is probably the best explanation I've ever seen in any form of media of why the slasher cannot be killed. Because that's well, subgenre of horror. James it, Cameron really... did work. Go ahead. James Cameron had worked uh, for John Carpenter on Escape from New York, and Which uh, makes sense. some of those effects, with some of those effects uh, ideas that he pioneered in that 
showed up in Aliens. But yeah, right. working mm-hmm. with John Carpenter, you know that they had to have kicked around a lot of really cool ideas about how to do what John Carpenter is really well known for, which is sci-fi horror. Yeah, Steve, your friend is a great addition to this week's show. I just got to say that. <laughs> he's I, a great I just addition, say that. period. He's on, he's, I, on I, my I, wa- he's on my wavelength. All right, there you go. You got approval from Scott Wilson there. So high, high marks, yeah. Um, yeah, there's so, ma- so many great lines from the movie. You know, I'll be back and everything else. Uh, classic lines. The one-man killing machine. The fact that it was unstoppable. That he went into it. Like, she thought she was going to be safe hiding out in the police station. And he's like, I'll be back. And drives right through the front door and proceeds to chop everybody down in that station to get to her. That's if that's not horror, uh, I don't know what is. Yeah, which is and, what Reese said would happen. He yeah. literally says he'll wade through you and rip her heart out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was just one. So in the past, we have one Terminator. In the future, it is a planet full of these killing machines hunting down the human beings. How scary is that future? Right. <laughs> and, if, and if I'm not mistaken, I think the T1000 was initially. An idea that may have been one of the first drafts of the original Terminator, but he just did not. He just did not have the money to do it. And they uh, tried, right? They they tried, and they tried. Also forget, right? Uh, Yeah, that would have been rough. That would have been rough stop motion. That would have been rough. Uh, But you know, the second Terminator film broke the bank. That was the most expensive film ever made up until that point. So you kind of see Cameron going within the seven years between 84 and 91. He starts out sort of a low budget sci-fi slash horror director. And then by 91, he's able to command the biggest budget ever given to a director for a film. And it was still a stepping stone because if you look all the way back at James Cameron's earliest interviews, you'll see a model of the Titanic on the desk behind him. And that really was uh, one of his big visions. And and movies like Abyss were practiced for that. Um, The computer effects and and the huge budget movies that he came to do all aimed towards funding the the mission to actually raise the Titanic and explore it. So, yeah, he he chased the technology uh, in, I think, really the best way that you could figure out how to is to go from a one-man show to being able to command huge amounts of money towards projects. Why not? You know, the, if you watch movie by movie by movie, it, you know, the, the technical expertise was there to begin with. And then the more people put money behind him, just the bigger the, the awesome got. And, you know, even when he tries not to, he's an action director. So what are you going to do? Very much so. Right. And the thing I want to just get out of the way, this is just a point of reference, nothing too important. A sci-fi author named Harlan Ellison, that for a moment in time, I think in the credits of the original Terminator, he was given credit because a lot of people felt that Cameron took from an Outer Limits episode. If I'm not mistaken, I might be getting that wrong. No, that's correct. Actually, it was two. There were two Outer Limits episodes. There was a court case. Uh, so Harlan case, Ellison right. it, it was reasonably famous for, um, I don't know, being kind of a curmudgeon. And if he felt he was owed money, he would not stop at all on trying to get it. 
And when a friend of his had seen uh, like an early screening of the Terminator, there was a comment that's like, wow, oh, this reminds me of one of your stories, which set Harlan Ellison on the path. <laughs> so he got legal with Cameron and the distributors and Cameron didn't want to pay him because Cameron had written his own stuff. He hadn't been just copying out our limits and Harlan Ellison's story about a future soldier coming back in time from the Outer Limits episode was actually 30 years after a previous story of the exact same idea. So there was prior art and Cameron wanted to fight it, but couldn't because the distributors wouldn't back it as a first time director. They basically said, look, we don't want any trouble. We just going to, you know, we'll pay them off. We'll shut them up. We'll give them a credit in the movie that, you know, we're acknowledging that he's somehow involved even though he didn't write any of it or, and it wasn't even an original idea to Harlan Ellison. And this is, if you go back and look at the history of Harlan Ellison, you'll see that this is just a pattern with him and he's not wrong for it. He, oh, if he, if he, he was a creator, he, he's got amazing science fiction to his name, but uh, there's times when you could argue that maybe somebody goes too far with their, you know, trying to make the point. And Cameron didn't want to fight it. I mean, he did want to fight it, but he he didn't want to basically put his whole life on the line over it because the distributors wouldn't back him. If he had lost the case, Cameron would have been legally liable to pay the damages, and it was pretty substantial given the small budget of the movie. Cameron would have had to pay, and he didn't even have the mortgage for that. I mean, the whole time Cameron was doing Terminator... He was basically living in cars and eating other people's sandwiches and stuff. I mean, he was on a very shoestring lifestyle. And at at the time Terminator was in post-production, he was also basically, you know, mainlining coffee, trying to write three other scripts, clean up parts of Terminator for post-production, as well as write Aliens, as well as write a Rambo Rambo sequel script. (laughs) So, you know... He just didn't have the time to take on, you know, one of the most famous curmudgeons in science fiction over an alleged slight. All right. So I think we could probably wrap up on that. I'll just, I'll just mention some of the, uh, the main actors. So as we know, Arnold Schwarzenegger is the Terminator and he's been in all of them. Sarah Connor was brought, was brought to us by Linda Hamilton. Uh, one of her first, you know, big screen things that she did. Kyle Reese was played by Michael. Is it Bean or Bane? I've always heard Bane. Okay, Michael Bane did a great job playing Kyle Reese. And again, just the whole... I love seeing time travel done well, where the whole idea here is that John Connor in the future has been preparing um, Kyle Reese to go back in time to protect his mother because he knows they're going to go after his mother. This whole time, he's fallen in love with her before he even meets her. He ends up becoming the father of John Connor. So it's the whole... Time travel, if I never went back in a time, you never would have been born to send me back in time to make you born type thing. I love when sci-fi creates these kind of paradoxes, loops. paradoxes yeah. and infinity loops. Um, Kyle Reese, such a great character. Um, Linda Hamilton, absolutely adorable in that first movie. According to Wikipedia, the world box office on this was $78,371,000 million. Which doesn't sound like a lot for a movie that had a ten million dollar budget. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's lifetime or just during its theatrical run. That's again, probably the theatrical run numbers. Uh, when they, what they do is they do a box office total. But one of the theories that I've heard is that the total 
for a movie you could estimate to be about 14 times the box office return. But the box right. office return right. was 10 times the spend. Right, which so, isn't terrible. No, I mean, if a movie makes back its spend, that's considered successful. It might not get into sequel territory, but at least everyone who put the money in gets paid. Right. From what, and, from what I've read... From what I've read with the creative accounting that goes on in Hollywood, the theory that's always been out there, the popular theory, is that a movie has to make three times its production budget in order to be considered solidly in the black. In this case, it's it made well it made well over that. So, right. yeah. And Rotten Tomatoes score of a hundred percent, which rarely happens, right? So, um, is that Terminator yeah. or Terminator, Terminator. Two? Terminator, yeah. the first Terminator, okay. according to Wikipedia, had a Rotten Tomato score of 100%. Um, fantastic. It, it's basically, it was a kind of a genre-defining movie. And, and again, it's not every... And I think this was done at a time when we were not thinking trilogy right away. You know, there was a time when we just made a movie, and we just hoped the movie would do well. And if the movie did well enough, then we would start thinking about how do we follow this up? How do we make this magic happen a second time? So this one did not have sequel or trilogy or franchise in its DNA when it was originally made. But, you know, so 1984, the first one comes out. 1991, we are treated to Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Once again, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Linda Hamilton, Michael Bain. Introducing Edward Furlong as young John Connor and Robert Patrick as the infamous T-1000, you know, liquid metal Terminator. It's world box office, $517 million. So slightly more money than the first, almost six, you know, almost $518 million world box office and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 93%. Um, stakes were higher, movies bigger. We got a soundtrack from Guns N' Roses. We got Arnold Schwarzenegger. This thing's being promoted on MTV. Um, Linda Hamilton now comes out as this badass military. She is like lean and mean and fit and wearing freaking combat gear. And, you know, any any nerd dude could not help but have the hots for Commando Linda Hamilton back then, you know. Um, but again, it's a sensing a pattern here. Our character is a very strong female lead, which was not very typical in science fiction. But when you take a movie that had never been done before and became this huge success, how do you follow this up? How do you make this better? Well, the answer was Terminator 2 Judgment Day. So we can talk to that a little bit. We'll go back to you, Scott Wilson, because you said this was the first one you saw in the theater. Um, so what are your thoughts and recollections on experiencing this on the big screen for the first time? Yeah, as much as I love this movie, my relationship with it is a little complicated because of this. I'm one of the few weirdos left who actually still prefers the original film because it's so gritty and it's just so hard charging. And it's just a really, like your friend said, a brutal watch. It's just, you know, it's a slasher film with guns and it really kind of scares you. It really kind of takes you aback. I mean, the ending when the flesh is burned off of the t-800 endoskeleton and it's still going as a kid i remember i can't believe this thing is still going yeah but but the one thing i will give cameron with the second film is that it's essentially the same basic idea as the first it's one long chase but the special effects the production values have been ramped up exponentially and the t-1000 is not as physically imposing as the T-800 because there's a difference between Robert Patrick's physique and Arnold's physique. 
but the presence of the T-1000, the look of which I think Cameron borrowed from one of the Dirty Harry sequels, Magnum Force, where he was fighting a bunch of road cops and they were all motorcycle cops and they had the exact same look if you ever look at that movie. Uh, and there's one scene where one of the cops is actually walking very stiff and robotic the way that Robert Patrick was. But the, just the conception of the T-1000 really is worth the price of admission. I mean, that was such an imaginative, creative thing for the time. And again, you cannot argue with the production values, the way that Cameron actually tries to flesh out the story a bit in terms of character, in terms of the character motivations. I mean, really, in my opinion, no no more Terminator movies needed to be done after that right. second one. I, th- I think Cameron basically took the concept as far as it can go. And he basically turned Linda Hamilton. You know, it's funny. He wrote The Terminator. I mean, he wrote Rambo First Blood Part Two. He was one of the screenwriters, I think. And that idea of a one of a, of a person turning themselves into a living weapon, he would carry that on here with Sarah Connor, Connor basically militarizing herself, basically, you know, cleansing herself of any emotion or emotional attachments. And, you know, he did that with Ripley to an extent. He, he likes that idea, I think, of not just strong women, but women who can handle a gun as well as a guy. Women who can be action heroes the same way that male characters can be. And, yeah, it's pretty. It's just a pretty complete package. The one-two punch of the first film and the second, it's one of the most complete, you know, packages in the history of cinema. Well put. So, you follow that up, Alan. <laughs> so, Terminator Two, the trailer that was created for it, um, was everything I wanted to see in Terminator Two. It was an assembly line stamping out T eight hundreds over and over and over again. Yes. So it wasn't just one Terminator. It was a whole endless factory robotic line of them, and I had really hoped that with the huge budget and it being the sequel, that they would do more with the future war. But again, Cameron does what Cameron does. He tells a very, very character-driven story, not just an effects-driven story. And Terminator 2, it breaks one of the rules for science fiction that I have, which is kids ruin science fiction. And you know, I don't like kids in science fiction because they're either trying to be too cute, a la some production companies, or they're cynical and snarky, and or they consider all the adults idiots or something. They just it, it always seems ham-handed and forced. And the only two times I've seen kids in science fiction that doesn't make me just want to turn it off have been James Cameron movies. So <laughs> Edward Furlong did a great job of being this raised by the craziest paramilitary trying to prepare for the future kid and ultimately rejecting it and then having to make that journey to get there. And that got on the screen. Did I want to see a future war? Sure. Was I promised a future war? Sure. That was what the original trailer was about. Did I get the future war? Not until two movies later. But what I did get, seeing Terminator 2 in the theater the first time, I figured after Aliens, yes, this was going to be some sort of action roller coaster, and I just needed to put, you know, buckle up the the helmet and pull down the goggles and be hang on, 
And I was pretty much right, because once it finally gets going, it just never stops. But I didn't expect to have at least a few moments that were as horrifying as the original one. And the the destruction of Los Angeles in oh, Nuclear Armageddon. The, yes. The, uh, yeah. It, it was amazing. It was Absolutely. everything that I had ever had a nightmare about. But now it's on the screen and you can watch it. And scientifically scientifically accurate, too. They spent so long getting it right. And for all the action and all the crazy and everything that goes on in that movie, there is that moment where you stop and just try not to throw up from seeing something so horrific happen. And Linda Hamilton's acting where she's describing the dream and the part you don't see. Because the first time the dream comes up, it ends at the flash. And she describes the shockwave and she describes the children burning like paper. And you see her take you through that is amazing. And then later they go ahead and pay off on it. I mean, it's like Chekhov's nuclear bomb explosion. Okay, we're going to describe it. But no, now you can actually just be there too. Amazing. And if everything else, you know, do I prefer the first movie or the second movie? I prefer the first movie. I'm much like Scott. I, I prefer the the street greediness of it. I prefer the 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 almost the lack of super slick polish uh, and the lack of humor. It takes a serious subject and treats it very seriously. Whereas Terminator Two, for the fans, rightfully so, does inject humor, which Cameron was known for after Aliens. And again, in Abyss, you know, he has these moments where the line, I'll be back in the first movie is delivered dead seriously. Arnold's making a threat to this cop sitting in this booth right before he runs into him with his car. Yeah, which is different from like Commando. Commando, he had all the quips and the one-liners. Remember when I said I'd kill you last, Sully? I lied, right? Or Predator. Yeah, stick around, stick around, right? So (laughs) so exactly, he he went from delivering them as one-liners and quits. You you, got to say it. Stick around, right? So yeah. Stick around. (laughs) Stick around. I'll be back. Get to the Terminator 2. Yeah. Go ahead, Scott. Right. No, everything he just said, like, I can't, I can't argue with any of it, and I damn sure can't make it any better than how he made it sound. But one of the things about the film, because from what I've read and researched, Cameron was shooting for a PG-13 rating with it. That's why it killed. That's why Edward Furlong even has to kill anybody. He was shooting for a PG-13, but the movie... If if you watch it, it's still a little too violent for a PG-13 with people getting speared through the head and a bunch of other stuff getting kind of staked through the head. The T-1000 when it, when it kills yeah, his Vasquez. parents. He stakes Vasquez. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, but, you brought up a continuity problem. So why does the Terminator use a floating point value to count casualties? Because at the end of the scene, he shot everybody. They're out of the right, commission. Right, right. And he pops right. up this 0.0 fatalities. Why do you need the point zero? Right. It's just no fatalities. 
But I guess that's yeah. what you get when you use a 6502 processor to do all your dirty work. <laughs> so. right. and, it's, it's, and it's also it's also like I think Cameron yelling at the the Motion Picture Association of America, "Give me a PG-13." Nobody died in this scene. That's an amazing scene, by the way, when he takes the the Gatling gun and just kind of. It, as a kid, was fourteen and watching that, I didn't realize it was actually that little continuity error that you just pointed out that made me realize I just saw an action set piece, a violent action set piece where nobody died in a Schwarzenegger film, and I was yeah. like, "Wow!" With the same weapon that uh, was called Old Painless in Predator. Predator, yeah, Old Painless, so, the helicopter. Yeah, the spark, yeah. that was paying off a bet with Jesse Ventura or not. <laughs> but by the, by the way, um, just quick aside, uh, the idea that, that that gun can be carried around and used that way, that's a bunch of nonsense. They just did that for Predator. You'll, you'll never see someone in the military carrying that thing around like it's a rifle. No, it's a helicopter door gun. Yeah. <laughs> it costs about a million dollars to fire all the ammo through it in one big load. Mm-hmm. Map. Yeah, I mean the the thing about this movie too was that the timing of it, 1991. This was like MTV at its peak. This was when you know when we had a few years where Michael Jackson owned MTV, but right around 91 is when that was the year of rock, when all the rock bands were really coming out and winning all the video music awards and everything else. And so the Guns N' Roses soundtrack, um, it, this was this this thing had MTV written all over it. The use of ILM's visual effects, um, the, much like you mentioned before in The Abyss. The Abyss is early CGI, and while CGI wasn't then what it is now, it, would, it was used to serve the purpose that it could, and it worked well. So when you saw like the water faces and stuff like that, that was pretty cool, and it didn't have to be super detailed. Uh, same thing here with the liquid metal. That was pushing the boundaries of CGI, but it served the character. Um, where we didn't try to make something uncanny valley, non-photorealistic thing and pass it off as real. It, 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 he used the technology to serve the story visually perfectly well. So it was the perfect match of like the action, the music, the soundtrack, the special effects. The, um, you mentioned it wasn't as violent, which it wasn't, but there was a handful of scenes. The one scene was, you know, with the, uh, the, uh, the, the blade going through the milk carton, going through the mom where, you know, your mother's already dead. And that thing's been memed the hell out of now too, you know, um, that thing. And then the scene, the, uh, the nuclear scene, I had a nightmare about that scene. I, because that scene is a nightmare. I had a nightmare living out that scene where, I don't remember how I got to this part in the in the nightmare, but I was like, okay, I know it's coming. It's a few seconds away. The, the world is going to end. I've got a gun in my hand. I could either blow my head off or I could burn up. I'm not sure which one I want to do. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hold on to that fence, and I'm going to let it burn me for a few seconds. And if I don't like it, then I'll shoot myself. This was all going through my head in this weird nightmare oh. scene that I had. And needless to say, I think I ended up burning up anyways, like, like in that movie. But I had this nightmare uh, climax of burning up on that fence like you saw in that movie so visually gripping and graphic and this story serving that's how Um, you know it's art yeah absolutely and and again so this is where lightning struck twice and if you look at the box office numbers this thing did phenomenally better rotten tomato scored 93 percent, so not 100 percent um, so now two out of at least two of out of three people on this uh, panel right now feel they like 
the first movie better because of all the reasons you've mentioned. I, I think I like them both equally well. I don't think one could exist without the other. They both have their, their, their good merits. Um, I, but if I had to pick one, I would almost say Terminator 2. Well, I would lean towards that being more of a favorite of mine just because of the grandiose scale of it. it just everything that it brought. Just the, you know, the soundtrack, the MTV tie-ins, uh, you know, starting off George Thurgood, your clothes, your guns, give them to me. You know, it's just all that kind of stuff. You know, it's just... Oh, see, and then seeing that scene reprised in, in the sequel. So, so here we are now, 1991. And the perfect movie was made, and as you guys mentioned, this is probably where it should have ended, and, and it didn't. And that's the whole premise behind this now, where franchise uh, syndrome kicks in. Now we feel we just have to keep making movies because the movie did well. And the movies that followed, which hopefully we won't spend nearly as much time on, but Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, really felt like a crowbar uh, movie for me didn't have other than Arnold Schwarzenegger none of the same cast we did not have Edward Furlong anymore and I don't I don't know if he just suffered from the the, tra the tragic child actor thing where you know fame and fortune went to his head and he never really did anything since that movie um, to to my knowledge um, but you know we didn't have we didn't have the John Connor that we knew we had some other guy who the hell was he who knows who cares right we had what's her face uh, I can't even think of her name right now his love interest and then the only thing we had was the kind of hot Russian blonde Terminator in the leather suit she was kind of cool and easy on the eyes uh, and you know and this one took place now 2003 so you know 10 12 years later. And the fact that Arnold Schwarzenegger could still reprise the role of the Terminator and still was physically fit and carried the whole thing off was great. But did that movie need to be made? Uh, by the way, box office, although actually pretty close to the second one, $433 million world box office. 69% Rotten Tomato score, though. So obviously nowhere near as uh, much of a fan favorite. John Connor was played and, by... And also keeping... Go ahead. Also keep in mind, also keep in mind that came out a decade after Terminator Two, and you have ticket price inflation, so that affects right, it. Right, right, So the TX was played by Christiana Locken, um, very, very attractive young woman playing the female Terminator. First time we've seen a female Terminator, which was kind of cool. And I feel she, you know, to do the acting like a killing robot, devoid of emotion. I feel she did an on par job with what Robert Patrick did. Um, playing that role, I just felt like the, th this was a movie that didn't need to be made, in my opinion, and I don't think it helped the legacy of this, my opinion. And I'm, and I'm going to say anything else after that, so I'm going to keep my part short and sweet. It was fun to watch. I'm not a huge fan. feel like it made the whole franchise jump the shark. Steve's done. Go ahead, Scott. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I saw this one opening day, I think, and now, now I'm by that point, I'm, I'm a grown man. I'm considerably older than when I saw the first one. I wasn't too impressed. There were moments that I liked. I like the ending where basically it's Judgment Day is inevitable. Future War is inevitable. There's nothing you can really do to stop it. I like that idea. Uh, outside of that, there's little moments that I like. Uh, I remember at the time, this was that it came out at a time where R-rated action films were no longer the thing at the box office. I mean, they kind of slowly petered out during the nineties. 
uh, and by that by that point in the early two thousands, it was mostly sort of these big event tent poles that weren't strictly action films or traditional action films. So it kind of stood out in that way. I appreciated that, but yeah, I think the whole movie is kind of an entire jump the shark moment. You know, the the skin film brought us the T one thousand, a whole new idea. You know, a mimetic poly alloy is that I think that's what he calls it in the second film. Uh, so, you know, that second film introduced a new idea, and I was looking forward to seeing a new Terminator in this third film. And all we kind of get is uh, an endoskeleton with liquid metal around it. And Hybrid. yeah, and <laughs> no, no thanks, fellas. That that was the first sign. Okay, Cameron's not behind this because Cameron knows how to build on his own ideas from film to film. Right. Um, it was just okay. It wasn't terrible. It was just okay. And that's as much as I can say for it. Yeah. There's really not anything to add on that. The third movie. Um, I don't have any complaints about it. I just don't really have much for it either. It, it's a bridge and you're kind of almost, can I just get to the next movie while you're sitting through that movie? Because right, right. there's, there's, yeah. It's a reprise of the same thing. We're after John Connor again. Okay. We, that didn't work the last time. You, now the definition of insanity is to keep just doing the same thing over and over again, expecting right. a different and, outcome. And, and when, when, when Arnold came back in Terminator 2 as being reprogrammed in a friendly Terminator, that was a new twist on something we yep. hadn't seen. So now having friendly Arnold is not even a new twist anymore. Nope. Um, now he's just like yeah. a cybernetic dog or something. He's just, yeah. okay, good robot. But and you so wanted to get to the future war, and they bridged the story up to that. But did that need to be a whole movie or a prologue to the next movie you actually were hoping to buy the ticket for, which would have been the future war itself? Right, right. So we'll keep that one short and sweet. Now, I'm assuming what happened here, this was probably kind of like Spider-Man 3, where we made a third movie and audiences weren't crazy about it. So now we need to take some time off and reevaluate and and reconsider where we're going to go with this, possibly even reboot. And what do we get after that in 2009? Terminator Salvation, starring Christian Bale of Batman fame as old John Connor in the future. Um, and, uh, another movie where I'll just say, cause this is one more movie that just didn't need to be made. Didn't help the franchise, did not propel the legacy. James Cameron, if I was him, I would have been rolling around in my grave even while I was still alive. There was, uh, uh, so there was a couple of cute moments, you know, uh, but movie we could have done without. So now we're basically on movie four. <laughs> I got nothing good to say about it. And I'll pass it on to you guys. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, if I, I'll, I guess I'll go first. I I love that film from a technical standpoint. I love the production values. I remember being in a theater with one of those giant ships. I don't think it was a hunter killer. It was some other kind of, like, I think transport ship was, like, hovering over the head of the characters. And just that base was just making my shirt ripple and rumble. Uh, you know, the, and the special effects... Uh, the bike, I think there was a motorcycle in the beginning that was sort of also like a sentient conscious or artificial intelligence or something. There were little things like that scattered throughout that I liked in the film. Uh, but when you talk about it just on a story from a standpoint of story 
And did I feel satisfied with it as an overall film, aside from the technical aspects? No, I did not. Um, this one, again, another okay movie. Another okay Terminator film. And, th- and by this point, at the end of this film, that's when I said to myself, okay, this is done. They don't right. need to try to get any more blood. They killed it. Any more blood from this stone? If you're gonna if you're gonna do it again, just reboot it and remake it and give it a different aesthetic and approach entirely. Absolutely, absolutely. Any uh, any redeeming any anything nice you can say about it, <laughs> Mr. Murphy? <laughs> so, this is where I'm going to have to disagree with both of you in that okay. I really enjoyed Salvation uh, from. Start to finish, John Connor is fighting the war, but he's not the boss. He's really good. They they give him a lot of leeway, but he's not the boss. So he's still got problems to deal with. The ambush, um, the entire opening act where they're trying to break into this base and rescue people and find all this other stuff going on. Fantastic. It shows how far... Skynet was willing to go. Skynet rounding up people. You get to see the camps. It's not the first movie where you saw the survivors in a bunker hiding out that got infiltrated. Instead, we go to the camp. We get to meet Skynet, finally. And we get to see all the way back, because this is a series that loves to play with the timeline, we get to see all the way back at the beginning that Skynet had other ideas going on as well in the form of interviewing Marcus in the first place. So there, to me, in Salvation was a lot of really cool stuff because at least we were in the future war. We were getting new Terminator models like those motorcycle ones that were out sweeping the highways. We got tactics. We got to see the future soldiers attempting an ambush. We got to see this high command structure of the surviving military trying to fight a a war that they were losing. And, you know, the whole movie is just, again, more of a horror, more of a, 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 a grittier, grimmer thing. And I think that's what they were trying to bring to it. I mean, McGee, the director, and Christian Bale, I thought they got it done with, I don't know, whatever compromises went into making that movie. I'm sure there were plenty because it came after T3 and because it was way out there. From the beginning of the franchise, the entire thing was we got to rein in the budget, keep the future war to the minimum, shoot everything local, and uh, oh yeah, it's time travel, so it's okay if we shoot in whatever the time period of the movie is. All right. Salvation said, nope, we're actually going to try to do the future war. And I wanted to know more all the way through it. How the heck did the military manage to keep the submarines going, the aircraft going? You know, where were we in the fall of humanity in the future war? Because it wasn't as bad as what we saw in L.A. 2029, but we did get to see L.A. We got to see young Kyle Reese, and he's already mousetrapping Terminators and and, and being, you know, a resistance fighter without a resistance to be part of. So I don't know. Maybe that's just me. I, I was perfectly happy with what I saw in the theater went, Oh, okay, cool. You know, could we do more future war? Could we do, you know, more like what was in the first? Sure. But what we got was what we got. And there were terminators rounding up people and people living in a post-apocalypse world and the military doing military things. And this whole subplot with Marcus 
okay, that's a fairly interesting gambit that Skynet is taking to try to deal with, you know, the repeated failures of the past. Okay. So, yeah, I I could name 10 good things about the Salvation, okay. no problem. All right. I have we'll no see. problem with it. I watch it to this day. It's one well, you, shelf. You got, you got me wanting to watch it again because I haven't watched it since it probably it came out, and I just remember not having the best taste in my mouth after watching it. And it might have been for other reasons. I don't know why. Um, my takeaway after but, seeing it was I could have not seen it, but you got me wanting to watch it again. <laughs> you know, he's not alone. He's not alone in that. I, I have quite a few friends, not just geeks, but cinephiles and guys who are into not just geek stuff, but cinema in general. And they actually have sort of a fondness for it. So he's not alone in that. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and so that was in 2009. And again, okay, three hundred and seventy-one thousand uh, world box office. Three, excuse me, three hundred seventy-one million world box office. So it did worse than Salvation. Rotten Tomato score of thirty-three percent. Yeah, so one critically of the lower ones. Lower one of the lower ones there. Um, and so now we're going to fast forward to twenty fifteen, and we get yet another sequel. This is Terminator Genesis. Now Sarah Connor is played by Amelia Clark, who is Daenerys Targaryen from Game of Thrones. So she's Sarah. Kyle Reese is played by Jai Courtney. John Connor, an adult John Connor, played by Jason Clark. So that's the cast we have now. Is anybody in here other than Arnold Schwarzenegger? No. Again, it's kind of like recasting and rebooting. And we have Terminator Genesis. So now we're trying to crowbar in another story between the stories to possibly repair some of the damage that the last two movies did that people didn't like so much. I don't know. Um, what were you guys' thoughts on Genesis, which is now movie one, two, three, four, five? It's now the fifth Terminator movie. Um, we'll, I'll, we'll go to Alan first. Alan, go ahead and uh, your thoughts on Genesis with, uh, with the Game of Thrones chick. It definitely wasn't Sarah Connor Chronicles. Which was which a great series, th- by the way. Yeah, which I think people preferred. Yeah. Uh, I would be one of them. I, I watched Genesis once. Um, I really just, I didn't even see the point. Um, I could barely tell you the plot if I tried. And you would need to load the gun and see. let me see you load it and put it to my head before I could actually start to dredge it all up. <laughs> the timeline had gotten so confused, and there was so much of the reboot type, but it's not a reboot, but is it? We don't know. That I just would, I, I had a hard time even engaging with it. Completely forgettable for me, too. Scott Wilson, you have the final word on Terminator Genesis. All right, so let's just make this super quick. <laughs> I, I checked out for this one. I was just like, I saw the. The trailers, and I was like, if the best they can offer me of a redux or a redo of choice moments from the two films that people actually liked, no thank you. And this is where 2015, that's the same year that The Force Awakens was released. So we are now in the era of the legacy sequel. And that's this had that written all over it. Let's let's do a movie sort of a tribute to the things in this franchise that you actually liked. And by that point, they had 
squeezed the stone too many times for my taste. So I didn't even watch it. World box the- office, $440 million. 27% Rotten Tomatoes score. So it fared mm-hmm. worse than uh, Salvation. Mm-hmm. It, it made more money than Salvation, but it came out a few years later, but the fan reaction was, was worse. Um, movie that absolutely di- didn't need to be made. I, it was completely forgettable for me, although I want to watch Salvation again just because of everything that Alan spoke so highly to, because you're, you're, you're a guy who I, I trust your opinion on, on many things. I, I appreciate your counsel. So yeah, that might be my watching this evening. Uh, and so now we fast forward to the final one. And I think we're going to, because we're already now at an hour in this episode, we're going to end this episode on this one and we might do a dual recording and we might record our second episode tonight and get into the alien franchise or save that for another day. That would be to be determined, but the final movie so far (laughs) in the now six movie run of the Terminator franchise sequel, uh, syndrome here is Terminator Dark Fate. And to me, what I think they did here is, is they said, basically, let's forget about every movie that was made since Terminator 2, and let's make the final trilogy chapter that we should have made to begin with, and we're going to just ignore <laughs> everything else. That's kind of what it felt like. Um, it did do some really good stuff with the digital de-aging, so showing us younger versions of the characters. Um Again, bringing back Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator. We get to see the young version of Arnold. Then we get to see an older version of the, of the Terminator with the gray hair and the gray beard. Is what would a Terminator do if he finished his mission? You sent me, I had one job. And I did that one job. Now I have no job. <laughs> that is an interesting concept to play with in the sci-fi tropes. Um, I enjoyed it. I feel like it was a love letter to the first two movies. I feel it, it was the best third movie we ever got even though it took us six movies <laughs> to get there and i didn't have too many things to really not like about it um i would definitely say i would give that one a thumbs up so what about you mr scott t wilson okay my react this one i did see i saw it on opening with my son okay i'm not necessarily crazy about this one but i wasn't offended by it there are some things in it that i like it has some of the hard-charging slasher movie spirit that I think they originally had, because the first 30 minutes of that film, up until like, they think there's a car chase where they introduce, set, reintroduce the older Sarah Connor, again, in legacy sequel fashion. She's much older now. And it's got, it kind of goes back to uh, that Halloween movie they did in 2018 with what they did with Jamie Lee Curtis. It reminded me of that. Uh, but you know, up until that point, yeah, like, like the, the energy was just real these terminators were straight killers and i like that about it i like some of the ideas in the latter half in terms of having the t-800 now that he's completed his mission and as arnold told us in the second one and i think it was largely in one of the deleted scenes from the second one that he has a cpu that actually learns the more he's around humans the more information he takes in and then make better at disguising him himself a more efficient killer too yeah right it makes him a more efficient yeah. killer but it's an interesting idea that one of the side effects of that or one of the unforeseen consequences of it is that he could develop a consciousness that a human does and therefore have a conscience and have empathy. That's a kind of interesting idea that I don't think this movie was really ready to deal with. I think you, I, I don't know how this is going to sound, 
but I think you need more of a real science fiction movie to deal with that concept. You can't really do it in the context of a legacy sequel, sci-fi slash horror slash action film. That kind of needs its own movie entirely. But long story short, I wasn't offended by it. I was mildly entertained by it. So a Terminator that basically develops its own thing, we've seen that before. Um, That was Skynet's experiment in salvation, basically with Marcus. So I I thought that Dark Fate, um, I can name 10 good things about it. Uh, I enjoyed it. Um, But it wasn't for me. Okay. I think that like the new Star Wars movies, it was kind of a sort of a reboot, love lettery kind of, here's what was so great about this thing you've heard about. But for the next generation of moviegoers, rather than the people who took the original ride. So that, that, that's how I was with the, the Star Wars. We'll talk about that at some other point. But uh, that, that's where I started getting with the Terminators is that you know, Sarah Connor Chronicles was not really for me. It's for a new generation of fans. Dark Fate, definitely for a new generation of fans. But we still have to close the chapter somehow. So you have to do that. We have to f- tie up whatever was left over and leave enough to go forward if you wanted for you know, the new audience. And I think it served. Uh, I, I wasn't, uh, I think it was, I wasn't offended. That was a great way to put it. Uh, as a fan, I wasn't disappointed. It's like, oh, all right, cool. More Terminators. Uh, not necessary, but at least not unwelcome. I feel kind of redeemed. Um, like, let's just say the third and the third movie for sure, Rise of the Machine. The third and fifth movie, where we'll, we'll say movie four, Salvation, will give it a pass. But I think it redeemed everything we didn't like about Rise of the Machines and Genesis and and tried to kind of make up almost like, we're sorry. We're sorry he gave you some crappy movies. We'll do better this time. <laughs> you know, it was almost an apology to the fans um, and a love letter. Yeah, so, but I think the whole point of this is, is that sometimes there can be too much of a thing and it doesn't become a good thing at some point in time. And I think this is just one example of the train that ran away from itself. Uh, And that's just the problem with Hollywood where we want to keep making something to ride the gravy train. And what they end up doing is they're just, they're just destroying the legacy of what was great. um, In my opinion. And I think this is a great movie uh, sixology or whatever the word for that is, but it's a trilogy. There's, you know, there's six movies that, that played out here uh, when there should have been maybe two, possibly three, um, like maybe movie three should have been the future war, right? M- movie two wrapped up the past and maybe a really good future war movie three could have wrapped everything up there. Um, who knows? Uh, but uh, six movies is probably two or three movies too many my opinion kind of like what we were saying about obi-wan right we had six episodes we had six hours we probably didn't need six hours to get to the story but the payoff was still kind of worth it um, right but yeah we, the sarah connor chronicles i really enjoyed that i think was that on fox i think and it was a you know weekly uh, series on normal network television at the time i really liked what they were doing with that and I think it was the writer strike that really screwed that one up. I think we got two seasons, and I don't even think the full second season even aired on network television. I think I picked it up streaming years later. 
But I was really enjoying what they were doing with all that. Matter of fact, my favorite Terminator from that series is Cromartie. And, of course, he's gone on to do so many other things that my wife knows him as John Henry and other things like that. But, like, no, to me, he's always Cromartie. And Summer Glau was great as a Terminator. She's been so good in everything she's done. She's almost like she's the sci-fi diva queen that's been in so many things that all just became cult things. Like, she needs to be in something that becomes as big as the, as the Terminator. You know, she's worthy of that. And for whatever reason, with things like... Uh, uh, I can't even think of the movie series. <laughs> what was the series? That we're, uh, what's the one? What's the one? Firefly. Firefly, yes. Firefly. And the movie was called... Um, Serenity. Serenity. Yes, 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 yes. So my memory's failing me in my old age. Yeah, those were all great, but this became like cult things. But she's so good. She's, you know... Um, and I think she's done a lot of voiceover stuff, too, especially in DC animation stuff. Um, but she was great. Cromartie was great. The John Connor guy was great. Uh, Lena Headey as as uh, Sarah Connor, she was great. That was something I, c- I could have seen more of, and unfortunately we didn't. But I love what they were doing with it. It was good stuff. Yeah, um, but we got what we got. We got what we got, and we, let's be thankful for it. Right. And um, but yeah, so the moral of the story is is sometimes there can you you can take a good movie and just make too many darn sequels, and then the the, the diehard old curmudgeon fans like us are not necessarily going to be happy about it. But you know they gotta <laughs> they got they gotta just keep keep trying to milk that stone, as Scott said. Okay, so we're gonna wrap up this episode. This has been episode twelve of Culture Ghost Pop with our special guest, Mr. Alan Murphy. A guy who knows a lot about movies and sci-fi and books. Thanks for joining us this week, Mr. Murphy. Awesome. Thank you. And thanks, Scott Wilson, as always, for being here, my partner in crime. And I'll just close by reminding everybody uh, how to reach us, right? So our website is culturegoespop.com, where you can get links to all the different places where you can listen to us. We are an audio podcast available on Amazon Music and Apple and Google and Spotify and Anchor FM and wherever you get your uh, uh, audio podcast, you can get us. If you want to send us feedback or comments or suggestions, send an email to show at culturegoespop.com. I'm Steve Strobridge. Thank you, Scott Wilson. My pleasure. And thanks, Alan Murphy. So we're going to wrap this up. Say goodbye, everybody. Have a good one. Peace.